It all uh, started with the 11th president of the United States. His name was James Polk. But because he was such an ordinary looking guy, uh, whenever he entered the room, most people didn't notice. Mrs. Polk didn't like that. Hey, this is the president of the United States. He's one of the most powerful men in all the world, and people are ignoring him, acting like he's just another face in the crowd. That's not right. I will not have that. So to make sure that her husband was given the proper respect, she made this arrangement with the Marine Band that any time her husband is about to enter the room, you know, for some major function, a special meeting, a, a formal dinner, a gathering of world-famous dignitaries, any time Mr. Polk was getting ready to enter the room, the band was to play this old Scottish anthem, Hail to the Chief. You know the tune. dum dum da dum dum da dum 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 now, it'd be better if we had a band up here. <laughs> you get the full effect. Because, especially when you got somebody like the Marine Band playing, this kind of music just grabs your heart and stirs you up and, and immediately calls you to attention. It makes you realize, hey, what's all the fanfare for? Because of the kind of music it is, it makes you aware that something important is about to happen or someone important is about to enter the room. And so, immediately you stop whatever you're doing and you turn and focus. Well, that's the same kind of effect that David, King David, you know, the one that killed the giant Goliath? That's the same kind of effect that he was going for when he wrote this song. The song that we're going to look at today, we call it Psalm 139. Now, we don't have the music anymore. I wish we did, but we do have the lyrics. And just looking at the lyrics, this is powerful. You get down to verses 19, 20, 21, 22, and you find out what it was that motivated David to write the song in the first place. He finds himself in a moment of time when it just seems like most people around him are not taking God seriously. In fact, some have gone to the extreme where they're just out and out mocking God and mocking anybody who dares to express their love for him. And man, that just gets David all riled up and he thinks, I'm not going to have that. I will not let you disrespect God in that way. And so he writes this song, this anthem, this majestic anthem, where he's attempting to call our attention to the glory of God. And specifically in this psalm, he wants to show us how that glory is being displayed in the people he's made. Isn't it amazing? You think about this, there are over 7 billion people living on the planet right now, and no two are the same. Each person is a unique, distinct creation of God, the only one of their kind. And it's all by design. See, when God wanted to show us his glory, he not only did it through the stars and the mountains and the waterfalls and the rainbows, but he especially wanted to put his glory on display in the specific way he made you and the specific way he made me. Which means if you are not being you and I'm not being me, his glory will not shine. Do you remember back in the book of Genesis and all the trouble that Jacob got himself into when he pretended to be something he was not? You know, one day he comes to his father Isaac, but he's in a disguise. He says, I am Esau. He's pretending to be the older one, the bigger one, the strong one. Esau, the, the, the guy covered with hair. You know, Jacob's the fair-skinned one, but, but Esau's older brother, he's, he's a hairy guy. Seems to be the more manly of the two, the one that makes the biggest impression on dad. Dad always seems to like him better than me. So here's Jacob trying to be Esau. He covers himself with goat skins. And then he also pretends to be a hunter, something that he is not. 
His older brother is. He's good at this, going out in the field and catching the game. So Jacob is working in cahoots with his mom, and they get this meat and prepare it in a special way. And then he comes with this story to his dad, and this story is nothing but a fib. Hey, Dad, you'd be proud of me. I was out in the fields. Can you believe it? I was out in the fields, too, and I was hunting, and I caught something. And I prepared it just especially for you. And yet this whole scene is nothing but a lie. And once the lie is exposed, it literally splits that family in two. And then for the next 20 years, Jacob's on the run, and he just gets involved in one conflict after another. And why? Because he keeps playing these games. He keeps trying to con people and trick and deceive. And it's not until you get to Genesis chapter 32, and Jacob gets involved in that famous wrestling match with God. And you remember how at the end of the wrestling match, God just finally just gets a hold of him. And he asks him a question. He says, what is your name? And finally, we hear him speak the truth. My name is Jacob. And God is thrilled. Hey, I've been waiting for years to hear you say that. I don't want you to be Esau. I don't want you to be like anybody else. I just want you to be Jacob. I just want you to be the man I made you to be. You ever play that game? We used to call it telephone. Maybe you have another name for it. But you have 10 or more people sitting in a circle. And the object of the game is to get a message out where everybody receives the same message. So you turn and whisper in the air of the person sitting next to you. And then they're to do their very best to take whatever they heard from you and convey that same exact message to the next person. And on and on it goes till you get the last person in the circle. And then they're to say out loud what they heard to find out. Did everybody hear the same thing? Well, if you've ever played the game, you know, most of the time it doesn't work. You know, you start off the game and you say, I love to take long walks on a beach. Now, that's pretty simple. I love to take long walks on a beach. And you whisper in that in the ear and, and it passes around. And by the time it gets to the last person, the message comes out, my cousin is choking on a peach. <laughs> and you think, how do we get from long walks on a beach to a cousin choking on a peach? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the further away you get from the source, the further away you get from the origin of things, the further away you get from the one who actually created and crafted that message, the more twisted and distorted the message becomes. Well, that game's a parable of your life and mine. The further we get away from what God wanted, what God had in mind, what God intended when he first made us, the further we get away from that, the more twisted and distorted our lives and our world becomes. And the less and less chance God now has to let his glory shine through your life and mine. That's why we got to. I mean, we just got to get back to the awesome truth that is being taught in this song. I was made by God. Now, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? Well, watch how the Bible answers this question. There are five stanzas to this song. Look at the first stanza, verses 1 to 6. You search me, Lord, and you know me, and you know me in great detail. Verse 2, you know everything that's going on inside my house. You see when I sit and when I write. Every time I make a move, you're aware of it. And you not only see everything that's going on inside my house, you see everything that's going on inside my head. You know everything I'm thinking. You perceive all my thoughts. And then verse 3, you see when I go out of the house, no matter where I may travel, you know every detail about it, about that trip. Last part of verse 3, you're familiar with all my ways. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You know what I'm going to say even before I'm going to say it. You hem me in behind and before it, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge. God, you know me better than anybody else. In fact, you know me better than I know myself. 
man, I'm not sure I can get my brain around this. Such knowledge is so awesome. It's so wonderful. It's too lofty for me to attain. Keith Myers calls it his rake story because it defines why he never had this connection with his dad. He said he was a little boy at the time and he saw his dad out in the backyard raking the leaves and he thought, I want to help. But the main reason why he wanted to help was just so he could be close to his dad. I mean, here was an opportunity to, to just spend some time with his father, be right there at his side, and while the two of them are raking the leaves, they could spend some time talking. And yet it never happened. He said as soon as he went out and shared his ideas, his dad said, yeah, that's a great idea, and immediately handed him the rake. And said, yeah, you go ahead and rake the leaves. That'll give me a chance to work on something else. And before Keith could say anything, his dad was gone, disappearing to work on another project. And Keith said that moment became a defining moment in our relationship because over the course of the years, we never spent much time talking because work was always more important than relationships. Getting things done as quickly as possible, that was the best way to use your time. Let's not waste our time in some kind of silly conversations. So the rake became a symbol of what my life was actually like with Dad. I wasn't here to be his friend. I wasn't here to actually enjoy a relationship with him. No, I was just here to help him out so he could get more and more things done. I was more like an employee than a son. That's not how God wants to relate to us. You know, when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and then a couple hundred years later when King David comes along, and he writes Psalm 139, one of the reasons they're writing is because of the kind of culture they're living in. They're living in a world where people believe there are many gods. And every one of them are mean, and every one of them are lazy. And the only reason they made people was so they would do everything for the gods. So part of what motivates Moses to write Genesis, and part of what motivates King David to write Psalm 139, is we want to set the record straight. A, there are not many gods, there's only one. There's only one who fits this category of God. And B, you need to understand what this God is really like. He is not mean, and he is not lazy, and he did not make us just so we could do everything for him. No, the reason he created us, because he genuinely desires an actual relationship with us. That's why David is going into all this detail here, how God knows everything there is to know about my daily routine, because he's really interested. He cares. He wants to be involved. So you get to the last part of verse 5, and it talks about how God it says, and he, you lay your hand on me. What are we talking about? You know, if it's the police, immediately you stiffen up. You know, you've been apprehended. You did something wrong, and now you've been caught. Oh, boy, now you're in for it now. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the hand of a friend. Yeah, I've been watching you all day long. I noticed everything you've done, what you're doing here. Man, this is awesome. I am so proud of you. It's the kind of touch that encourages, affirms, builds up. So you see, when God made us, it's not that, okay, I think I've given you everything you need because i got to hurry off. i got a bunch more people that I need to create and make, so i got a lot of things to do. So uh, do the best you can. Good luck. See you. And there's never another connection. Not at all. The whole purpose of this psalm is for God to let us know from the very moment your life began there in the womb and every moment after, he wanted to have this personal connection with you. He wants to be a vital part of this story that's being told in your life and in mine. Look at the second stanza, the second paragraph in this magnificent poem. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the highest places, the heavens, the sky, you are there. If I make my bed in the deepest parts, you're there as well. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, he's talking about where the sun rises, I go as far east as I can possibly go. Or if I go as far west as I can go, you're there. 
You never lose track of me. It's not just that he's there to observe. He's there because he wants to make a difference in our lives. Remember that hand, you lay your hand upon me? He's there to help. Verse 10, even there, no matter where I happen to be, your hand's going to be on my life. And your hand is there to guide me and to hold me, to help me out and to guard me. Even verse 11, surely the darkness will hide me. We could be talking about a physical darkness where for human beings, man, I can't see a thing. That's no barrier to God. Or we could be talking about a moral darkness where our lives are in trouble because of the bad things other people are doing to us or because of the bad things we have done. Oh, no, now God will lose contact with me. No, even then, he is aware and he is deeply concerned. And if we're ever to get out of that jam, it's going to be because of the Lord and what he can do for us. So I'm thinking, man, I'm in this dark place. Surely the darkness will hide me. The light become night around. Even God won't be able to reach me in in a situation like this. Not so, verse 12. Even the darkness will not be dark to you, and the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, again, let's make sure we're not misunderstanding what he's saying here. You know, this is not like the movie Meet the Parents. Ben Stiller comes to meet his future father-in-law. Turns out to be Robert De Niro, this intimidating guy, former CIA agent. You remember that scene where he's saying, I'm watching you. My eyes are on spooky, unnerving. It's not what we're talking about. This is more like an undercover agent with a wire. And here he is going into enemy territory, and you'd think he'd be scared to death, but he's not. Because he knows sitting right across the street, sitting inside that van, are all his fellow officers. And as they're sitting inside that van, they're carefully watching the monitors, watching every move he makes. And positioned at key spots all around the building is this SWAT team. So if he gets into any kind of trouble, all he has to do is speak into the wire, say the magic word, and every one of them jumps into action. Every one of them is watching for his safety, watching for his support, watching so he can be successful in carrying out this mission. That's the kind of love and support that God is providing here. So halfway through the song, you just kind of step back and you think, okay, what have I learned to this point? And you realize every moment of my life matters to God. Everything I do is significant to him. And if it's significant to him, it should be significant to me too. There used to be a lady up in Chicago who worked at a toll booth. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you talk about a boring job. I mean, would you not go crazy if you found yourself stuck in that tiny booth all day, every day, doing nothing but handing out change to people? But she didn't see it like that. She was a Christian. She had read Psalm 139, so she realized, I am made by God, and I was put on this earth for a purpose, which means my job is not just a job. It's my ministry. I'm not just here to hand out change. I'm here to make a difference in other people's lives. So she thought to herself, think of the opportunity. I've got thousands of people I meet every day. I know the encounter's really brief. They're here, they get the change, and off they go. But I have this opportunity in some way, somehow, to touch and impact thousands of people's lives each and every day. So every day when she got up, she made it a girl. I'm going to be the friendliest person they meet in the course of that day. I mean, who knows what they're coming from. That, as they're driving home from their work, what kind of nasty, painful stuff they had to go through that day. And here they are fighting the rush hour traffic and in a hurry to get home. So if I could smile or just offer a word of encouragement or maybe just the way I look at them, I want to... I want to give a blessing. I want to bring a touch of heaven. I want to add a taste of grace to their lives. Well, it wasn't long. At the end of every day, you'd see this long line at that one particular toll booth. You see this long line. I mean, the people going through the Easy Pass or whatever they call it up there in Chicago, but there'd be two or three other toll booths just completely empty. Hey, you can go right through and get right. 
People, end of the day, rush hour, willingly, sitting there, waiting just so they could meet that lady. See that beautiful smile, hear that friendly voice, and know that when she said to them, I'm going to be praying for you, she really meant it. See, in her own tiny way, she was making a huge impact on others. Why? Because she understood this truth. Everything I do, it matters to God. And if it matters to Him, it should matter to me as well. Third stanza of the song. For you made me. Isn't that awesome? You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, God, because now I begin to realize I am fearfully. And here that word fearfully literally means carefully. God wasn't in a rush when he made you. You were carefully designed and carefully put together. Not only that, I am wonderfully made. And the Hebrew word literally means to be made in a distinctive way. So if you're sitting at the track there on race day, down there in Speedway, the day of the Indy 500, and there you are sitting in a crowd of three, 400,000 people, and as we scan the crowd, we have no trouble picking you out because no one else has that look. No one else laughs the way you do. No one else walks that way or talks that way. Everything about you is unique and special. That's why when they were translating this from the Hebrew to the English, they use this word wonderful. That's how God sees you. Everything about you in the eyes of God, everything about you is wonderful. You are an absolutely unique display of the glory of God. So David writes, your works are wonderful, and I'm one of them. I'm one of those awesome works of God. And I know that full well, and we need to know it full well, too. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. You saw me growing and developing there in the womb. All the days ordained for me. Just, not just when the moment of life began, but every moment after. That's important to God. He's interested in this. He wants to be involved in that. So you come to verse 17, and he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, God. And he's not just talking about his thoughts in general. He's talking about the thoughts that God has of you. Do you realize there's no one who spends more time thinking about you than God? I mean, you, naturally, you think about yourself more than anybody else does. But all the time you say, that doesn't compare to all the time that God just spends just thinking about you. So David, man, again, I'm trying to get my brain around this. How vast is the sum of just the thoughts you have about me? How vast that is. Well, if I just tried to count all the time you spent just thinking about me, all the different ways you think about me, it out, all those individual thoughts that just outnumber the grains of sand. And when I'm awake, I realize you're still there with me. To this day, experts in the world of golf will tell you they still believe that Jack Nicklaus is the greatest golfer of all time. And, and one of the things that made him great, they said, was his demeanor. They, they called him the bear. And the reason they called him the bear, he was a bear, like a bear out in the golf course. And the reason they used that, that, that image is because he was just impervious to pressure. I mean, every one of those golf tournaments, he'd be surrounded by this huge gallery of people. And knowing that his every move was being watched by this enormous audience on TV. So all these people watching every single thing he does never bothered him, never faced him. I mean, on the golf course, he was strong and poised. And in complete control on the golf course, Jack Nicklaus was the master. But you take that same Jack Nicklaus and you put him in a maternity ward, and it's a different story. The legs turned to jello. I mean, four out of five times he was there for the birth of all five of his children. But the first four times, he fainted. <laughs> first time he fainted, he hit, he hit his head the, on the floor so hard, he, he really hurt himself pretty bad. 
So the second, third time around, he brought some friends along and said, hey, this might happen. And it did. Fortunately, his friends were there to catch him. Fourth time along, the friends brought some smelling salts. Jack, you got to stay awake for this. You need to appreciate what's going on here. So they got all these smelling salts, and he still fainted anyway. <laughs> on the golf course, he was a bear. But in the maternity ward, he was a chicken. See, because of the unique way God made Jack Nicholas, he was going to do well on a golf course. But don't send this guy to medical school because he doesn't have what it takes to be a doctor. Now, here's my point. I was not made like you, and neither were you made like me, which means don't expect me to be like you because I can't. You can do things I can't and vice versa. So part of my duty, part of my responsibility, and it is a lifelong process, is learning to understand how did God make me? What am I good at? What can I handle? And what am I not cut out to do? In other words, how can God best display his glory through my life? You know, if you're an introvert and you go into sales, you're asking for trouble. You're just going to have nothing but headaches. I mean, for 10 hours a day, it's just going to be people, people, people. And by the end of the day, your soul's going to be like a dried up, shriveled up prune. You won't have an ounce of energy left inside of you. Or if you're the opposite, you're an extrovert, you're just a natural leader, you love being out in the crowds and you love interacting with all the people, and yet you sign up to do this research job where for 12 hours a day you're stuck inside a cubicle, you don't see a human face all day long, you're there all by yourself doing nothing but writing documents, you're going to go nuts. There were some things you were made for and other things you're not. There's some places you fit and other places you don't. If you're a Jacob, don't try to be an Esau. And if you're an Esau, don't try to be a Jacob. Learn to be the person God made you to be. And then determine that you're going to be the best you you can possibly be. That's why when you get to the end of the psalm, David finishes with a prayer. The fourth stanza, verses 19-22, he takes time to look at all these people who are not listening to God. They're not allowing God to have any kind of influence upon their life. They're getting further and further away from the source, further and further away from the one who actually made them. And David sees how twisted and perverted and distorted their lives are becoming. And he's thinking to himself, I don't want that to happen to me. So you get down to the fifth stanza, verses 23, 24, and David prays, God, you know me better than anybody else. You alone know what is right for me. Set my heart and set my life in the right direction. Notice what he says. Search me, God. You know my heart better than anybody else. Put me to the test to purify me. If you see anything anxious, anything offensive, anything that shouldn't be there, let's get it out of the way and point me in the right direction. Lead me in the way that leads to eternal, everlasting life. Kent and Barbara Hughes went to a Christmas play. This was up in Wheaton, Illinois, years and years ago. Kent, for years, preached at the church there in Wheaton. And they went to the Christmas play because their little girl, Holly, had the lead role. Holly's a bright girl, very, very gifted. And sure enough, that night, she charmed the audience with her acting ability. So at the end of the performance, it wasn't just Kent and Barbara. I mean, everybody in that school auditorium just stood to their feet and gave her the standing ovation because her performance that night was brilliant. Well, Kent and Barbara had made arrangements for Holly to stay with some friends because as soon as that play was over, they had to hurry over to another school because their littlest one, Kent Jr., was involved in a Christmas play, too. Now, Kent Jr. is not nearly as gifted as his older sister. In fact, he has a learning disability, so he didn't get the lead role. He was lucky to even get a role at all. And the role he had only had four lines to it. And it took him six weeks to try to get those lines down pat. And even then, he wouldn't always get it right. So that night, 
Kent and Barbara, they're sitting on the edge of the seat, so nervous for their little boy. Oh, I, I hope he does well. Halfway through the play, it comes time for his scene, and the spotlight shines on little Kent Jr., and he says, Strange feelings come upon me, though I know not why. The night is still around me. The stars shine in the sky. And for the very first time, he actually quoted his part perfectly. Well, nobody applauded because nobody in the audience really appreciated it. What an accomplishment that was for Kent Jr. But if you could have taken a look at his dad and mom, Kent and Barbara, if you could have looked in their hearts at that moment, they were giving their son a standing ovation. They were just elated, only four lines. Man, they were elated with that performance. So after the play, they get Kent Jr. and they go back and they pick up Holly. And as a family, they go out to celebrate because both children were equally pleasing to their parents. That's how God sees us. Listen, in this life, there are going to be some people with 10 talents and other with only two. There are going to be some people who have six degrees behind their names and others who never even had a chance to go to college. But that doesn't matter. What matters is not the level of talent or the level of skill or the level of learning. What matters is your heart. Will you take what God has given you? Given you? I mean, maybe he gave you something more. That doesn't matter. Just take what God has given to you in the way of talents and opportunities and make the most out of it. Will you really give God your best, your very best, so that now he has a chance to really let his glory shine through your life and through mine. Let's pray. God, we live in a, in, a, in a difficult world. It's such a discouraging environment where every day we've got others watching and criticizing and judging and putting us down. I mean, just every day, God, our souls take a beating. That's why we've got to get connected with the, with the truth of this psalm. We're not an accident. We were made by you, God, and we were put in this world for a purpose. So God, today, begin to open up the minds and hearts. Let us see and understand and just really appreciate what you had in mind when you first made us. And God, through the power and help and work of your Holy Spirit, may each one of us become that man, that woman that you want us to be. God, we want your glory to shine through our lives. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.